0: Does anyone in here ever tend to get motion sickness? Anybody in here? Whether you're in a boat or a car or an airplane, something like that? Well, my wife grew up in Texas where everything is flat and straight. And I grew up in the mountains where everything is up and down and zig and zag. And if you go more than 100 yards without a turn, you fall asleep because you're bored, Right? And so whenever we're driving up in the mountains, sometimes, especially when I'm the one driving, she might get just a little motion sick. Well, motion sickness is caused when your inner ear knows that there's movement, but your eyes don't see it because maybe you're reading a book or you're looking at something inside the car, and so your brain gets these mixed signals and you get sick. So the solution to motion sickness. So here I'm going to give you some helpful Helpful tidbits, Bob, all right? So if you're feeling motion sick, the solution is to find a fixed point. Maybe it's the shoreline. Maybe it's the horizon. Maybe it's just the yellow lines down the middle of the road in front of you, and the motion sickness will start to go away because you need to look outside of your immediate environment and find that fixed point. Well, the same is true as we try to navigate the rough waters of cultural change. It can seem like that the values of our culture are in constant flux. Up is down, inside is out. What once was wrong is right. What once was traditional values are now hateful bigotry. And we feel like we're just being tossed by these waves of cultural change, and that can make anyone seasick. We need a fixed point outside of ourselves, outside of our cultural environment, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus who is constant and on His Word that never changes. That is our fixed point. Now last week we looked at what God's Word tells us about the dignity of every human life, especially the unborn. Because we are created in God's image, designed with eternal dignity, every life matters, young and old, born and unborn, healthy and sick. And so we need to respect, protect, and nurture every person. But abortion isn't the only cultural storm we have to navigate. Gender is another critical, confusing, and complicated issue our culture is dealing with. Gender identity, gender fluidity, transgenderism, gender roles... You may feel like that these waves are going to capsize the American ship. But there's hope. Because God's Word provides an anchor in this storm. God's Word provides that fixed point for us as we wrestle with this issue of gender and and the issue of sexuality. Despite the confusion surrounding gender in our society, I believe that we can find clarity In the Word of God. And so this morning, I want us to look at what the Bible clearly says about gender, and then I want us to look at some specific ways our world is confusing the nature of human gender, and then we're going to conclude with how Jesus reclaims and redeems gender and calls us as the redeemed to speak clearly and compassionately to this issue. So, first, let's look at the gender clarity that we get from our Creator. And a few points I want to share. One is that your gender is a gift from God. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1. That's the beginning right there of your Bible, for if you need help with that. I don't know the page number in the, in the Pew Bible, but it's probably right after the table of contents. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. From the beginning, God designed most living creatures to reproduce sexually, which requires male and female members of the species. For human beings, created in the image of God, our maleness and femaleness serve more than just that reproductive purpose. It is a gift that God gave you before you were even born. In the womb, God knew you. And He was knitting you together as a unique, beautiful, one-of-a-kind person. And part of that is your gender. It's part of what makes you who you are. In human beings, each cell, each cell in your body contains 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46 chromosomes. This is your genetic code. 22 of these 23 pairs are called autosomes because they look the same. Whether you're a man or a woman, those 22 are the same. But the 23rd pair are the sex chromosomes. And they differ between male and female. Females have two copies of the X chromosome, whereas males have an X and a Y chromosome. So the moment you were conceived, God wove together that double helix of your one-of-a-kind DNA that helps to, to make you who you are. It contains the blueprint the genetic code to help you look the way you look and and to some respects even act the way you act. And there's so much about who we are that God weaves together in that strand of, of DNA. And it's amazing if you look at that double helix of DNA and you think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 139 that we focused on last week, that God knits and weaves us together in the womb. Being male and female is a gift from God. He gave you your gender for a specific purpose and for an ultimate purpose, and that ultimate purpose is to His glory. And so that's the second point I want to make about this, is that your gender gives glory to God. Look back with me at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 again. We are made in God's image. It says in verse 26, after His likeness, and then it comes down in 27 and it explains what that means. We are created in God's image after His likeness, male and female. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder what exactly is the image of God? Does that mean that God looks like me? Thank goodness, no. Yeah, I heard that. No, that's not what that means. So what does it mean that we are in the image of God? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, the image of God is Jesus Christ. So to be in God's image is to live, act, and love like Christ. You want to know what the image of God is? Look at Jesus. That's our model. That's who we should emulate and strive to be. However, an additional aspect of God's image is this male and femaleness. Now, let me explain. The us that created man and woman. When it says, let us make man, who's the us? Who's God talking to? Well, it's the triune God. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is both oneness and diversity at the same time. Each member has a different role in the Godhead, yet despite their different roles they express unity by complementing each other in self-giving love and submission. And we see this. We see this in creation. In creation, the Father wills it. The Son, the Word of God, speaks it. And the Holy Spirit accomplishes it. We see all three members of the Trinity at work in creation. In God's great redemptive plan, the Father sins, the Son goes, And the Holy Spirit motivates and empowers both Jesus' ministry and the church's mission. The Trinity is fully involved in both creation and redemption. So a a unisex creation would not represent the image of God. Now when we look at the creation story, God makes pairs of different but complementary things that are designed to work together. We see heaven and earth, darkness and light, We see uh, plants and animals, sea and land, God and humanity. Unity in diversity, it's woven throughout all of God's creation. God designed a world where unlike things have to unite and create dynamic holes which just generate more and more life and diversity and beauty. And at the pinnacle of creation, you have man and woman. And we have especially unique, non-interchangeable qualities that can see and do things the other cannot. There are so many things my wife sees I don't see. So many things she can do that I cannot do. And so in this way, we are created in the image of God because God expresses His unity through diversity and He created us as male and female for the same purpose to express unity through diversity, through complementing one another, not competing with one another, not copying one another, through mutual submission, not sameness. And so, gender gives glory to God. Look at Genesis 2, verse 24. After... Eve is presented to Adam. He, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. God made the man and the woman different so that they could complement each other. Each completes what is lacking in the other. And so we reflect this divine unity as we complement each other's strengths and weaknesses in self-giving love and mutual submission. So is it any wonder if this is true? if, if, If your gender is a gift from God, and if our gender so expresses the glory of God, if our gender is such a picture of the, the diversity but unity of the triune God, is it any wonder the sin-sick world under the influence of Satan is doing everything it can to destroy the image of God in us? To destroy these concepts of mutual love and submission, of unity through diversity, of equality and variety. Our gender gives glory to God. And, and a third point is that God celebrates these gender differences. Because it gives Him glory, because it's His gift to us, God celebrates them. Deuteronomy 22, 5 says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15 says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Now, these are the kinds of verses in the Bible we like to ignore, aren't they? Because they just seem so out of step with the times. They just seem so sexist and so politically incorrect. I mean, does this mean that women can't wear pants? Does this mean, Blake, you've got to get a haircut? I mean, what do, what do these verses mean? Your mama did not pay me to say that. I'm just, just letting you know. But see, if you take these verses in their cultural context, these commands make perfect sense. Now, in the Old Testament, the Deuteronomy passage, Israel has gone into the promised land where they are surrounded by these pagan cultures. And many of the religious practices of these pagan people involved temple prostitution because they were fertility cults. So it was all about you know making the crops grow. And so they, they had all of these fertility rites that they would do. Now... A lot of these religions believed in an androgynous deity. And these temple prostitutes, especially the men, believed that they were indwelled by this androgynous deity. And so they would do things to deny their maleness and try to appear more female. And so they would would have feminine dress and manners and occupations. Sometimes they would even engage in, in castrations. Now, obviously, God detested these pagan rituals and this idol worship. Obviously. Because we're to have no other gods before Him. We're not to make any graven image. But He also detested the rejection of their God-given gender. In the Corinthians passage, Paul was writing to a culture where women wore head coverings to show their marital status. And Paul is addressing women in that church who were shaming their husbands by not covering their heads. Imagine today, if a man's wife refused to wear a wedding ring out in public as a way to signal to others, hey, I'm available. That would be such a dishonor and a disrespect to that husband. So Paul is telling these women that they should not take lightly the power their words and actions have to either be their husband's glory or their husband's shame. That's what those verses are referring to. Well, if we take this and apply that to how we live out our gender, you know, except for some species of earthworms, there are no sexual, unitary, or ternary animals or plants. They are all binary. And in every species, the male and the female have different roles, different functions. And these distinctions between men and women are God's gracious gifts to be celebrated. Not burdens to be shed. Not... Not some sort of social construct to be rebelled against. Our gender differences matter to God. He declared them very good. So they should matter to us and we should recognize them as the good gifts they are. Now, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that only those in the LGBTQ community are guilty of rebelling against God's design for gender. Because they're not. Men, we rebel by being too passive in our families, in our church. You know, I'm working with the committee on committees and it's amazing that that there are more women that serve on our committees than men. We have more women that are teaching and working in this church than men. Men, we're being too passive in our church. We're too passive in our community. And so we're rebelling. And we're rebelling by being too aggressive and domineering with our wives or our children or our co-workers. Women, maybe you find yourself rebelling against your differences by seeking from men the approval and validation that you only can receive from God. Maybe it's by trying to live up to some unattainable perfect ideal or by resenting the authority of others. We all, need to examine, confess, and repent of the ways in which we fail to live out our gender as God intends. All of us do. Fourth point, God equips us to flourish in our gender. God celebrates the gender differences. He wants us to live out those gender differences, and so God instructs us in how to live out those gender differences. What does it mean to be a man or a woman? How are we to live as godly men and women so that God's image can flourish within us? Look back at Genesis chapter 1, this time verse 28. Here we see God's mandate to humanity, to all people as male and female. God blessed them. So he's talking about Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, so this is the mandate to all of us in this room. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is to every member of the human species. But if we look at Genesis 2.15, we see how the man, how Adam, is to fulfill his part in this mandate. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Adam is told to work and keep the garden. Now, Matt Chandler, in his book, uh, God's Beautiful Design, says this, God's beautiful design for manhood is the establishment of an environment for flourishing. So, guys, there's your job description as men. We're to establish an environment for flourishing. And just like Adam was, every man is placed on this planet in a garden and given the opportunity and responsibility to cultivate a flourishing environment for their children, their wives, their friends, their church, their community, for all of God's creation. So men, what is your garden that God has given you to cultivate? Well, I think it starts in your marriage. It goes to your family. It's your place of work. It's your community, it's your church, it's your small group. It's whatever ministry God has given you to fulfill in the body of Christ. Men, when we follow Christ's example, when we engage in a deep and an emotional way and we care for the hearts of our family and friends, I promise you that our homes, our communities, and our churches will flourish. But all too often, we follow Adam's example rather than Christ's. All too often, we we don't cultivate flourishing, we create chaos. And that's why God said it's not good for man to be alone, amen? Come on, man, let's own up to it. We create chaos. So what then does it mean to be a woman? What is her role and responsibility in the world? See, women work with men in filling and forming the earth. They work with men in ruling over creation as bearers of the Creator's image. That's what we see there in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 28. That's the charge for all of us. But look at chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now jump down to verse 20 kind of 20B there. It says, but for Adam... So, so God, after He says that, God brings all these animals to Adam and Adam's naming all the animals and it says in verse 20B there now uh, that uh, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So in other words, of all the animals God made, they're not going to cut it. Those are not suitable helpers. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Here is how women fulfill their sacred duties in the world. Here's how they help to increase human flourishing. First, again, notice that, that in all of creation, every time God made something, He declared it was good. He made man and woman. He declared it was very good. But in between that, when God made Adam, and Adam was kind of stumbling around the garden by himself without a clue, God took a look at him, and for the first time, God said something was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. Adam alone could not complete God's mission for humanity. Remember, God set up creation to need that binary, complementary relationship, that unity and diversity. Now, let's break down the female's role. She is a suitable helper. Now, that's not demeaning. Eve wasn't there to bring Adam his coffee or to make him a sandwich. That's not what that means, that she is a suitable helper for him. Suitable, that word suitable in the Hebrew means like. Like. Comparable to. She was comparable to Adam. They were different, but they were equal. And that Hebrew word for helper is even used to describe God. In Psalm 3320, it says, We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our helper and our shield. So ladies, when it says that Eve was a suitable helper, that's not demeaning. At all, That term communicates the unique strength and ability that God has entrusted to women. And they work together with men in complementary ways to cultivate and exercise dominion over the earth and to spread God's image throughout the world. And so we should help our children understand how men and women are different to embrace and celebrate their God-given gender, to appreciate and respect the opposite sex. And this is especially important today when there is so much confusion and deception about gender in our culture. So let's shift to that then and talk about the gender confusion from the culture. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you're aware of at least some examples of our culture's current confusion about gender. Bruce Jenner. Now, I grew up, when I grew up, Bruce Jenner was the guy on the box of Wheaties, right? He was an Olympic athlete. But in 2015, with much media fanfare, Bruce transitioned into Caitlyn. And in many ways, this is what has given rise to our current conversation about transgenderism. If you look back through the news cycles, you look back through all the social media before Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn, this was not that big of an issue on our nation's stage. Now there's a, a trend on college campuses to introduce new pronouns and procedures for introducing yourself to people so as not to offend anyone who isn't gender-conforming. Even some elementary schools are now instructing their teachers to refrain from using gender pronouns when talking to or referring to their students. Health clubs around the country are allowing people to use whatever showers and locker rooms they want. Of course, we know the Obama administration has even mandated all public schools to adopt this same principle. Boys and girls can use whatever bathroom or locker room they want to use. And some schools are even expanding this to include sleeping arrangements on school trips. The state of Minnesota has threatened to eliminate all gender distinctions from high school sports. One sports reporter wrote this, In this scheme, there would be no accounting for sex differences in high school sports on the field or in locker rooms, bathrooms, and hotel rooms. Now, if you think about that, if gender distinctions are eliminated in high school sports, if that's carried to its logical conclusion, what does that do to college sports? What does that do to professionals? What does that do to the Olympics? Uh, there wouldn't be any men's this or women's this. It would just be one category, which I guess you means half as many people winning gold medals, right? Because you've eliminated those gender distinctions. North Carolina continues to suffer abuse at the hands of corporations like IBM, PayPal, the NCAA over their bathroom bill that is passed to keep local municipalities from forcing businesses to adopt policies that would make it illegal for them to restrict bathroom and changing room access to one's biological sex. It seems the transgendered movement just won't stop till everyone bows down to their agenda of eliminating all gender distinctions in every sphere of life. And make no mistake, the transgender agenda and religious liberty are on a collision course. And it's shocking to think that our country is on the brink of elevating transgender rights of accommodation and non-discrimination over First Amendment rights of free speech and freedom of religion and freedom of association. What is behind this cultural shift in our nation's priorities and values? Well, we can understand what's happening better and we can respond to some of the lies, and that's what they are, lies of the transgender movement. And I want to make sure that we differentiate between transgendered people and the transgender movement, okay? There's a difference there. The first lie is this. Your sex may be assigned at birth, but your gender is up for grabs. See, postmodernism, which is the, the, the philosophy we all live under today, postmodernism says there's no absolute truth or reality. Truth and reality are just social constructs. Truth is whatever is true for you, And so rather than having to conform your feelings and ideas to reality, which is what most of us grew up thinking you would do, you know, if if you don't have enough money, if that's the reality, then you have to change your desires, don't you? And you can't make that trip to Alaska or wherever you want to go because the reality is you don't have any money. But now you can reshape reality to conform to your thoughts and ideas. And this goes for gender as well. If a man feels like a woman today, then he can self-identify as a woman. The facts of his physiology or genetic makeup don't matter. Your gender can be whatever you want it to be. It's all about how you feel. One champion of the transgender movement said this, Nowadays we understand that anatomy isn't destiny. It's your choice to be called lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and questioning, intersex, asexual, or something else. That's not a misstatement. It is your choice. We have reached the point that regardless of anatomy, you can choose your identity. And you can choose to change your your gender identity as often as you change your clothes. So every day you can be something different. That's a lie. The second lie. There are no biological differences between the genders. Kate Millett was one of the founders of modern-day feminism. She was the first to put forth the notion that all male-female differences beyond anatomy are cultural in origin. In other words, there are no social, psychological, emotional, or mental differences that are inherent between men and women. And this has led to the idea that's called omni-gender. Neither male nor female. And proponents of this way of thinking want to eliminate all references to gender distinctions. On your driver's license. On your birth certificates. They've already been eliminated in McDuffie County on your marriage license. There's no husband and wife anymore on that marriage license anymore. It's just two names. In sports... This way, everyone is free to declare and change their gender preferences at will. Remember, I talked about the Minnesota State High School. Well, well they have proposed, the Minnesota State High School League has proposed this. It is important for policy makers to understand that transgender girls, and then they specify, who are assigned a male gender at birth. You see, so the, the assumption isn't that you are just born a male. You are assigned that at birth. It says they're not boys. So so it's it's important to understand that transgender girls who were born boys are not boys. Their consistent and affirmed gender identity as girls is as deep-seated as the gender identity of non-transgender girls. The belief that transgender girls are not real girls is sometimes expressed as a concern that allowing transgender girls, meaning boys, to compete on girls' teams displaces opportunities for real girls To participate. Don't you love how they put real girls in quotation marks? So here's the translation of this statement No one is born a boy or girl. That's not real. What is real is what the child says or claims to believe. Think about that for a moment. The inconvenient facts of life, like physical characteristics, DNA, And the realities of sex are to be flatly ignored when identifying gender. And any attention to those characteristics is called hateful and should be punished as such. This is similar to the first lie, namely that your sex is biological. It's just anatomical differences for the purpose of procreation. Gender is a social construct that's forced upon you at birth, a mold that society has unwillingly and unjustly forced you to conform to. And if that's true, if that's an injustice, then what's the just thing to do? To change your gender. Well, let me share some truth. The truth is biological sex does determine gender. And this is good news. Think for just a moment of all the confused and hurting people out there. Some are not sure what gender they are, and the world tells them that according to Facebook at least, they have 75 plus options. And they are left on their own to try to decide, out of 75 options of gender, what they are. That's not compassionate. That's cruel. And the Bible clears away that fog. Birth defects aside, physiologically speaking, our physical bodies clearly tell us whether we are male or female, thank God. But it goes so much deeper than even just those physical characteristics. Every cell in your body is either XY or XX. It's either male or female. No matter how many sex change operations one has had, no matter how many hormones one takes, a male will always have the XY chromosomes and a female will always have the XX chromosomes. Nothing can change this. This is God's good design at the genetic level. One theologian explained, the modern way of presenting such a mindset is to separate gender identity from bodily form. But we cannot separate the two. God Himself has not lied to us in giving us our body. This is the identity He has chosen for us. We don't have the freedom to remake ourselves. We have the freedom to receive His good gifts and through Christ our Savior to treasure them. Another truth. You cannot change your gender. Psalm 139, 13-14, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your body, a wonderful work of God, is not lying to you. Your anatomy is telling you who you are and who God made you to be. Now, I want to encourage all of us to do some research on our own about the negative effects. I just don't have time to go into it today. The negative effects of gender transition, especially sex reassignment surgeries and hormone therapies. The vast majority, the vast majority of those who undergo such procedures experience severe bouts of depression, many sadly ending in suicide. And these individuals have an abnormally high risk for drug and alcohol abuse. Many of them experience regret and eventually return to their birth gender. Just last month, two researchers at Johns Hopkins Hospital released a massive new 143-page report which, quote, "...offers a careful summary and an up-to-date explanation of many of the most rigorous findings produced by the biological, psychological and social sciences related to sexual orientation and gender identity. Basically, they went through and looked at just about every major study and research that's been done across the board when it comes to sexuality and gender. And I just want to share with you a few of the summaries of their findings. Like I said, it's 143 pages. Here's a few of them. The current studies on associations between brain structure and transgender identity are small, methodologically limited, Inconclusive and sometimes contradictory. There is no evidence that gender identity is an innate fixed property of human beings that is independent of biological sex. In other words, a man trapped in a woman's body. There's no evidence for that. The consensus of scientific evidence overwhelmingly supports the proposition that a physically and developmentally normal boy or girl is indeed what he or she appears to be at birth. The overwhelming evidence. Gender dysphoria, which is, which is a, an actual psychological disease, it's a sense of incongruence between one's biological sex and one's gender, accompanied by clinically significant distress or impairment, is sometimes treated in adults by hormones or surgery. But there is little evidence that these therapeutic interventions have any psychological benefit. So in other words, it doesn't change That mental distress they have, they still feel like they somehow are not in the right body. Uh, People who suffer from anorexia or bulimia have the same sort of an issue. It's a dysphoria. They may be skinny, but they think, they feel like they're fat, and so they starve themselves. It's a psychological issue. Only about 0.6% of U.S. adults identify as a gender that does not correspond to their biological sex. 0.6%. Given how our culture is fixated on this and talks about this and all the laws that are being passed, you would think it was like 30%, wouldn't you? It's 0.6%. There are more blind people in the United States than people who identify as a gender other than what they were born with. Science has shown that gender identity issues in children usually, and this to me is the most important one, usually do not persist into adolescence or adulthood, but there is li- and there is little scientific evidence for the therapeutic value of puberty delaying treatments. Yet the government has mandated that you cannot counsel children out of this belief that they are of the o- other gender. You have to engage in puberty delaying treatments. It's by law you have to engage. You can't. A doctor has to follow those parents' wishes. This is, this is where we're going. Yet the science says there's no proof for any of that. The vast majority will outgrow it. So I'm going to conclude with this. What do we do? What do we do? We live in a world where gender is confused. Where even we aren't quite living out our gender as we should. But I believe that gender can be reclaimed in Christ. Now, when we think and talk about this issue, we have to remember that for many gender confu- for many gender confusion is not about open rebellion. Okay, it's, it's not everybody's just just out there you know just to be rebellious. For many, it's about illness, it's about trauma, and we must also remember that again, none of us are perfect in living out our gender identities. Men, how often have you failed in your role of protecting, cherishing, leading, and providing? How often have you dominated rather than served? Women, how perfect are you at fleshing out God's image in you as a female, as a suitable helper, as a wife or a mother or a sister? In other words, we all experience some gender confusion on some level. But the gospel gives us hope. Through Jesus, we can know God's forgiveness and be transformed into the image of Christ. Jesus redeems us spiritually, physically, mentally and sexually. He makes us new. So quickly, three action steps for us as people who are redeemed and reclaimed by Christ. One is repent and turn to Jesus. Let's all repent of the ways that we fail to live up to God's image within us. Let's look to Jesus as the perfect example of what it means to be a human being. Men, Jesus is your example of how to be a man. Women, Jesus is your example at how to live out, flesh out the God-given gender that He has given you. Secondly, we need to love the transgendered. How should we relate to someone who has changed his or her gender? With love and compassion. Don't look down on them. And when the time is right, as you have opportunity, as, as you should do with anybody, share the gospel. We must have great compassion for transgender people and for those who are suffering with gender dysphoria. And so if, if someone ever comes to you struggling over their feelings about their gender, wondering if they should change their gender, ask a lot of questions. And listen well. Love them unconditionally. Practice hospitality and pray for them fervently. And three, if you are in this room and, or if you know of someone who is struggling with gender identity issues or disordered sexual desires, repent, turn to Christ and seek help. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, said, "...the Christian stands obligated under scriptural authority to insist that the gender assigned by biological sex is not an accident. We affirm that biological sex is a gift of God to every individual and to the human community to which that individual belongs." Our desires, our perceptions, our bodies all testify to the disorder of a sin-ravaged creation. Paul says that all of creation has been subjected to frustration and decay and is groaning for liberation when Christ returns. And so the good news for people dealing with gender issues, as for each of us, is that the broken bodies we live in all need redemption. And in Jesus Christ, all things are promised to be made new again. Scripture doesn't guarantee total relief from our struggles and our issues and our temptations in this life. But it does guarantee future resurrection from those desires, perceptions, and flawed bodies that are subject to decay and death. One author wrote, Because because our biological sex doesn't lie, because our minds are susceptible to confusion, repentance and sanctification for the dysphoric individual involves the long work of bringing their perceived gender identity back into conformity with their biological sex. A person may never fully arrive at peace, but putting on the new self, remade in Jesus Christ. And that means embracing and trusting God's authority over every facet of our existence. We all need the gospel, don't we? Because we're all sinners. Whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or transgender, transgender, We are all broken. We're broken sexually. We all need the gospel. We all need a Savior. We all need the love, patience, care, and compassion of the church. And for anyone dealing with these kinds of issues, it's going to be a long road for them with many valleys. They need to know that God's people will be there not to judge or condemn them, but to love them and walk with them toward healing and wholeness in Christ Jesus. We all, need healing and wholeness in Christ Jesus. You may be here this morning, and this is not an issue for you. That for the vast majority of us, I'd say it's not an issue for us. But how we treat these people is an issue. And you may find that that you just have intolerance in your heart. Not towards the, the movement and the lies of the transgender movement, but towards the people. We war not against flesh and blood, do we? but against principalities, principalities and powers. We need to love those people. Maybe this morning you need to repent of some prejudice. You need to repent of some unkind things you've thought or said or ways you've acted towards people who are different from you in any way. Maybe this morning you need to come and unite with this church family to say, I want to stand with First Baptist Church in engaging our culture with truth and grace, with conviction and compassion. Maybe for you this morning, God has called you in some way to be His hands and feet and to reach out to others and to love them and minister to them. And maybe for you today, you're the one who needs to come to Jesus Christ and experience healing and wholeness in Him. He stands ready to forgive you and welcome you with open arms into His kingdom. If you would come as we all stand and sing today.